Father, we thank you that we are secure in the arms and hands of Christ. God, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, you draw those, your people to yourself, and no one can take them out of your hand. Thank you, God, we are secure in you and secure in your love. would pray that that would create in us a, a security of life and living. God, to know that you hold us fast. Even, God, when we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God, we know that our heart is yours. And we plead, God, that you would take it and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. So now, Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would open ears and open eyes and open hearts, God, to just embrace, God, the the things that your word has for us. Thank you for the treasures that it contains and for the guidance that it gives. So we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would teach us and encourage us once again by a simple exposition of your scripture. Um, God, just guide us and direct us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a, a little illustration here. You've seen these things many times, I am sure. I have, uh, I have two drinking vessels. Okay, we have, we have one like, I'm not sure, what, what would you call this one? Like, I don't even know. A chalice? What do you call it? A, a, gob, a goblet. Even if it's glass, you call it a goblet? Okay, a goblet. I call it a chalice, I guess, but, but whatever. Fancy drinking glass. We got a goblet in here, and we have plastic drinking cup here. And, uh, you know, the one at our house, we store in our, our china cabinet. And if you would stoop down, you'd be able to, to see these there on display for all to see. And this one we store in our pantry, dark away, stacked, and never sees the light of day. This one we use on special occasions. Uh, we have dinner with a, a few select friends over. We don't have a lot of these, but we have enough, maybe, I don't know, 10, 12, 16, something. And we would pass these around, and we would have these uh, on our on our dinner table, but this is when we have a crowd, right? When we have a big party and we don't want to clean the glasses afterwards and we want to, want to throw them out. We don't want to bother washing everyone's dishes. This is filled with only the nicest of beverages. Uh, usually um, sparkling cider is the beverage of our choice that gets filled in here. And, and only a little bit oftentimes. We don't have a lot of sparkling cider to go around. And so we just get a, a little taste. This, on the other hand, uh, we're talking water and maybe on special occasions lemonade or maybe some soda. Um, David will like it with there's root beer would be great. Uh, this one is used only at the dinner table. And when we drink from it, we sometimes raise our pinky finger, right? To, to, to look nice. And, uh, this one is used outside sometimes with like a picnic or something like that. And, uh, oftentimes it is, uh, just left lying around neglected from its owner. This one gets the utmost of care. When we're finished with this goblet, we, um, we normally don't put it in the washing machine. Um, dishwasher. We don't put it in the washer either. Clunk, clunk, clunk. <laughs> That'd be terrible. But we normally don't put it in the dishwasher either unless we it experienced that same fate. Um, just kind of the heart, hot, hot water on that. Normally we wash this by hand. And uh, uh, this one gets abused. Uh, with this one, what we often do is we, we write on it, right? We take a name out and I write on my name on there, right? So we write names on here so that everyone's got it. And at the end of the party, it's crushed and it's thrown away 
but not our goblet. Well, this is an illustration of our text this morning that we have. On the one hand, we have a vessel of mercy, which receives our care and honor, special use. On the other hand, we have a vessel of wrath, which is abused and thrown away, never to be used again. And these vessels are found in our text. If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. And our text this morning is verses 22 through 24. If you didn't bring a Bible in your pew Bible, it's page 945. You can uh, turn there and look at it. And, and before I read the text, I want to give you a little warning. John Piper says of these verses, In all the Bible, there are no more weighty or ultimate or difficult words than Romans 9, 22 and 23. So we're, we're wading into some, some difficult words, but listen to them. I trust that God will help us to open them up this morning. Romans nine twenty two. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us. Whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I trust you can see the, the two vessels mentioned there. We have vessels of wrath in verse 22. We have vessels of mercy in verse 23. Ones are, are prepared for destruction, verse 22. And the others are prepared beforehand for glory. Now, in order to understand these vessels and Paul's point in mentioning them, really we need to we need to review a little bit. For the past several weeks, we've been working through Romans chapter 9, and the entire chapter really flows from this question about the unbelief of Israel. If Israel received these great promises of God, like Jeremiah 32, 32, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. If God has promised that the people of Israel would be his people, and that they would be his God, then, then what about Israel's unbelief, because in the days of the New Testament, like our days today, Israel rejected their Messiah. And Jewish people today predominantly reject their Messiah as well. They're, they're unbelieving people. And if that took place with them, then really Paul's concerned about what about us? We've received some great promises of God, of security and love. And, and, and what will, will happen with us? Will God's promises fail to us? And Paul begins and he says a resounding no. He says the promises to Israel didn't fail. And the promises to us won't fail either. And here's how he says it. He says it in Romans 9, verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Any apparent failure of the word of God has everything to do with properly identifying the people of God. See, it's not only the physical descendants of Israel who are the line of Israel, but it's the spiritual descendants. In other words, just to be a physical child of Israel doesn't mean that you are a spiritual child of God. For instance, Abraham had two children, Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac was the child of the promise, not Ishmael. And Isaac had two children, Jacob and Esau. And Esau was not the child of the promise, but Jacob was. As the Lord said, verse 13, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Which then brings up another question. Is is that really just of God? To to choose one over the other, to choose Isaac over Ishmael and choose Jacob over Esau? Is, is Is that really fair? And actually, we spent the last two weeks answering this question because verses 14 through 18 answers this question. And the answer is this, that God will be God. It says in uh, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. 
God is free to do whatever He wills. And, and again, the question comes up, is, is that really fair? It, it, verse 19, right? Why does God still find fault? Is that really fair? And the answer came last week. As clay, we have no right to answer the potter. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Well, this morning we have the third answer to the question. And Paul's just digging in. And this third answer comes in Romans 9, 22 through 24. I want to read it again because that's where it's all come from. It's all about how can God have mercy on whom he have mercy and how can he harden whom he harden and yet God still find fault? That's the big question. And the answer here comes, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And the text, I'm not sure if you noticed, is actually one big question. Ends right down there with a big question mark. He answers, as he did last week, right? He answers his question about, is this really fair of God? How can God still find fault if he's the one that hardens and he's the one that shows mercy? How can that be? He asked a bunch of questions last week. We had four questions, five questions last week, I think. And today we have our sixth and final question. And it's a question that, that should settle once and for all. This question about God's fairness and justice. It's a question that by the end, it should lead us to the conclusion that God's right. We have no objection that, that God has full right to have mercy on whom he will and to, harm, and to harden whom he will. And there's nothing unreasonable or unjust about his actions, and we have no right to complain. That's the answer to the question. So this whole big question, 22, 23, 24, when you get down to the end, it says, yes, God has every right to do that, and there's no objections. We have no right to complain. And it all has to do with God's patience. My, my message this morning is entitled, God's Patient Plan. Because that's, that's really what it is, and that's what we'll see out of these verses. It begins with God's disposition towards those deserving judgment, found in verse 22. That we find God willing to judge. Here it is, again, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Here it is. God is very willing to judge our sin. The ESV even interprets this as his willingness is a desire. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, then what if God, desiring to judge, God desires to judge, or as I said, he's willing to judge. Now, it's, it's not that, that God within himself has some eager desire to, to judge sinner because, sinners because of some sadistic deity that he is. He gets no pleasure in the pain of others. Ezekiel 18.32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. See, God is willing still, though, and desires to judge sin. You've got to say, why? Why is God willing and desires to judge sin? Well, because when sin is not punished, there's this moral imbalance in the world, in the universe. And God's justice comes into question when sin is not punished. And, and if the Lord doesn't judge this sin, his reputation is at stake, his character is at stake, and his very being is at stake as well. 
and for the honor of his own name and his commitment to justice, he's willing to judge. And he's willing, as verse 22 says, to show his wrath and to make his power known. That is, God is willing to pour out his wrath and his fury and his vengeance upon those who have rebelled against his will, setting things straight about who's in charge and who isn't. And throughout the history of the world, he's done just this. In the days of Noah, he judged the whole earth, wiped out all but eight people. In the days of the Jews, when they were slaves in Egypt, he poured out ten plagues upon the Egyptian people, killing the firstborn of all the Egyptians. (laughs) Even Israel and Judah weren't immune to the wrath of God. He raised up the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. He raised up the Babylonians to take Judah, the southern kingdom, into exile. And the Lord did all these things, as 22 says, to show his wrath and to make known his power. Because that's what happens. When God judges, he shows his wrath and people see his power. And on many occasions in the Old Testament, people look back to see how the Lord poured out his wrath and his power. And they gave great praise and honor to God. Consider these verses, Psalm 29, verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. He's the king over the throne. He's a king over the flood. He's the king over the throne forever. Or Exodus 15, 1, shortly after the, the Egyptians who pursued into the Red Sea and the waters fell upon them. The song of Moses, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. Praise to God for the judgment that he has brought. There's Psalm 136, 10 through 12. To him who struck down the firstborn in Egypt and brought Israel out among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, his steadfast love endures forever. Or another one, Psalm 103, verse 7. He's made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel, just exalting in God, of God pouring out what he did through Moses. And the reason why God's judgment brings praise is because, catch this, salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation always comes through judgment. James Hamilton wrote a book entitled, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. It's not an easy reading book. Um, it's a pretty, pretty thick book. I've not read it. Um, just perused it a, a little book. But it traces the themes of salvation and judgment through biblical history. Uh, even the the sub-theme there is God's glory and salvation through judgment, a biblical theology. That means you're going to just trace these themes through the Bible and listen to what he says. He says, salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation for the nation of Israel, the exodus, came through the judgment of Egypt. And this pattern is repeated throughout the Old Testament, becoming paradigmatic even in the New. When God saves his people, he delivers them by bringing judgment on their enemies. And this is not limited to Old Testament enemies such as the Philistines. At the cross, the ruler of this world was cast out. At the consummation, <clears throat> excuse me, at the consummation, Jesus will afflict those who afflict his people. Salvation for all believers of all ages is made possible by the judgment that falls on Jesus at the cross. The cross allows God to be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans 3, 24 through 26, and the cross of Christ. The climactic expression of the glory of God in salvation through judgment is the turning point of the ages. Right? Salvation always comes through judgment. And God is willing to judge because it makes known his saving power. Right? But here's the amazing thing. He doesn't always do it right away. He doesn't always judge 
right away. Sometimes he's a bit slow about things. Sometimes he waits. This is my second point. That God is not only willing to judge, he's also willing to wait. We see this in the second half of verse 22. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, what if he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So here we see that God's willing to judge. He's also willing to wait. And I trust you can see that there in verse 22, that he has endured with much patience. That is, he has waited to judge. He has endured. That is, he's remained under the pressure and he's, he's not caved in at times. And believe me, right, when the wickedness of people rises <clears throat> and it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds, it builds this... this um, Righteous anger within God. It builds this desire in God to make things right and to establish the balance back into the universe. And it makes him put things right by executing his judgment. And if God can tempted, if God were able to be tempted, which of course he can't, James 1.13, if God could be tempted, it would be right here just to pour out his righteous wrath upon the unbelieving people of the earth. But he doesn't. He's willing to wait. He's willing to endure. We saw that earlier in Romans, Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. We saw it. It says this. It says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There will be a day when this judgment is poured out. And someday that cup of wrath which being filled every day will be poured out upon those who refuse to believe. As Darren read from Psalm 75, verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Just a picture of the wrath of God coming out upon all the earth. And someday that cup that's being filled every day by the sin of believers, this wrath of God, sin must be punished Someday will be poured out upon the nations. But right now, he's waiting. He say, waiting for what? I say, waiting for repentance. Uh, again, Romans 2, I read verse 5 for you. Think about verse 4. It says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, God's patience in judging, shows forth his kindness, right? Rather than destroying sinners instantly as they deserve, he waits, and he waits for hearts to change. He waits for people to turn from their sin. He gives them a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance. And as VeggieTales made famous, our God is a God of second chances, right? Those of you with kids, little kids, know what that's about. And that's what he does. He, he waits. And only when they refuse to repent does he pour out his wrath upon vessels of wrath. And when he does, he does so willingly. But God's greater desire is to see people repent. Uh, I read a portion of Ezekiel 18.32. Listen to how it ends. Uh, I'll read the whole thing. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. He says, so turn and live. In other words, I'm not desiring to destroy you, so turn and live so I don't have to destroy you. Right? The way of escape of the judgment of God is to turn to Him and cry to Him for mercy. And God's patience gives time for repentance. Peter said it this way, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, 
That is the promise of judgment, at some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the heart of God. He's willing to wait. He's willing to give time for repentance to see people turn and repent. But God's justice requires judgment. And Peter, right after chapter 3, verse 9, and 3, verse 10, says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God's day of wrath will come, and it will come with severity. It will come upon the heavens and the earth, fire burned up. And it will come upon vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now there's much debate theologically about this term, prepare for destruction, and the debate surrounds the agent. Is God preparing these people for destruction? Or are they preparing themselves for destruction? The the text isn't clear. It's passive. It means that that they are prepared. They were prepared for destruction. And it could be either. It could be the potter whose design of these vessels is destruction, which he had every right to do, which is totally consistent with our text this morning. Or it could be the vessels themselves who prepared themselves for destruction through their hard and unrepentant heart. And we don't know. And I think it's intentionally ambiguous unless we impugn God with some false realities. Then though that is unclear, what is clear in verse 23, though, is that God is the agent in preparing vessels for mercy. We may prepare ourselves for destruction, but it's God alone who prepares vessels for mercy. And we see that in my third point this morning. God is willing to judge He's willing to wait. Also, he is revealing his glory. That's the purpose of of verse 23. That God deals with vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy in such a way as to bring out his glory. You can see this in in, in the opening phrase of verse 23 when he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory. God is willing to judge. He's willing to wait because he's revealing his glory. If he didn't judge, he didn't wait, his glory wouldn't be revealed. Let me think about it. What would happen if God would instantly pour out his wrath upon mankind? Like, like, like what if God had no patience, but right now, without waiting, then vessels of mercy would perish in the fire. Instead, he waits. He waits for the vessels of wrath to be transformed into vessels of mercy, mercy because we're all born vessels of wrath. That's where this illustration breaks down of the the chalice and the, the goblet and the plastic cup. Is that these don't transform into one another, but God transforms people. In Ephesians 2, 3, he says that all of us were by nature children of wrath. We saw in Romans 5. In fact, even turn back there, Romans, Romans chapter 5. We see an amazing thing. We, we see that, that Romans 5, 8, Paul describes us as sinners. We see in Romans 5.10 that Paul describes us as being enemies of God. That is, people who oppose the ways of God, fighting against God, who deserve destruction. But through God's grace, we became vessels of mercy. Romans 5.8. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, rebelling against the Lord, he died for us. And verse 10. While we were enemies, right? while we were vessels of wrath. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And that's why God delays the judgment 
upon the vessels of wrath because he wants to make known the glory. He wants to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. See, God waits and doesn't judge. And as he does that, there are consequences and they aren't all good. There are some bad consequences of delayed punishment. It often brings a boldness of evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is set fully to evil. And we see that in our judicial system as as people are incarcerated and and their their judgment date is delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. It's like people will like, oh, I I can do that because I'm not going to be punished. And, and, and you see that many times with parents. A parent threatens a child with some punishment of some type and then fails to follow through. What happens to the child? Emboldened in disobedience, right? Maybe you've seen it in a public place. A parent responds to a, a child with, who's disobeying with threats of, of leaving. If you do this, I'm going to leave right now. I'll leave you right here. And what happens to the child? Normally, zero change. Because the child knows full well that mom isn't going to leave them there in a, in a public place. It's an empty threat. That, that mom's empty threat is no reason to stop bad behavior. And the same takes place when the judgment of God is delayed. People mock God. They scoff at him. Again, going back to Second Peter. Second Peter 3. Scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffering, following after their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep... All things are continuing as they were from the beginning. And as the Lord delays his judgment, there's mounting unbelief and there's mounting mockery of God. But that day will come when he puts forth his full display in final judgment. You can read it in the book of Revelation. At that point, their hearts are so hard, nothing will change them. Uh, just, just consider the bold judgments, right? In Revelation, you've, you've got the, the seals pouring out God's wrath, and then, and then you've got the trumpets pouring out God's wrath, and then you have the bulls that are really pouring out the wrath of God. Revelation 16, 1, the chapter begins with this. Then I heard, this is John, I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bulls of the wrath of God. I'm interested in the fourth and fifth bulls because it demonstrates my point I'm talking about here. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat. And what did they do? They cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. And then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people gnawed their tongues in anguish. And they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. So we see the reality of the vessels of wrath is that they hate God. They rebel against him, even during and in the midst of their own judgment. And too often opponents of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God that we've been looking at, that Romans 9 opens up. They they, they wrongly think that God is unfair of choosing people from the foundation of the world. They they, they think wrongly that there are people who desperately want to walk in the ways of God, but they, they weren't chosen. And so they're denied the opportunity to walk in the ways of God. And people say that's so unfair. But that's never the case. If God would not choose and call us out, we all are vessels of wrath. We all deserve condemnation. Every single one of us here in this room. We all are children of wrath, but by the grace of God. And there's not a single one of us who would turn and look to him apart from his saving grace in our lives. So it's not that people 
who aren't chosen or God works in them, denying opportunity to enter into heaven. They don't want that. And too often, opponents of this doctrine of the sovereignty of God wrongly think about election. That, that They think that people come kicking and screaming, like, oh, God has chosen me. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I want to go this way. I don't want to go. And then they get dragged against their will, and, and they enter into heaven, might be feet first, right, like this. I don't want to go, right? They want to go that way. That's not how it works. That's... that's that's not how it works. It's contrary to the Bible. It's contrary to your experience. I know that, right? Nobody pleading mercy at the cross will ever be condemned to hell, regardless of their election status or not. Nobody entering into glory will ever be forced to do so because God changes their heart, gives us a, a desire for Him. How exactly that all works with the sovereign hand of God, I'm not exactly sure. Okay, this is mystery here, but it does. And Paul couldn't be more clear that we're born vessels of wrath. And God prepares some of those for glory, calling them vessels of mercy. And God does the preparing. That's what verse 23 says, right? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. And so when you think about reading this in the context of Romans 8 and 9, I mean, you realize that God did this preparation in eternity past. And what God decreed would come to pass. Romans 8, 28 and 29 speaks of the unbreakable chain of salvation. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. This, this whole link of this chain from being foreknown or foreloved, right? Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And it's the very ones that were foreknown that were predestined. And the predestined were the called, and the called were the justified, and the justified were the glorified. These are links together that cannot be broken. And so when it says that God prepared them beforehand, verse 23, in glory, for glory, it's eternity past. And, and, and Paul's bringing out this, this verbiage here in, in verse 24, Romans nine twenty four. He says, even us... Right, he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. That's the middle link of that chain. That, that he's prepared us beforehand. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says before the foundation of the world. And then he says he's called us. And he's called us ultimately then to know his glory, which is the fifth chain. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. He's pulling in all of that imagery and all, all that verbiage here. And God calls us. That is assuming you're a believer in Jesus. I, I'm not naive enough to think that there are some among us who haven't trusted in Christ. And if you're not trusting in Christ, know that God is simply being patient with you this morning. He's willing, He's desirous to pour out His wrath upon vessels of wrath. But He's, he's waiting, He's patient. It's his patient plan. And if you're here this morning without Christ, call upon Him. Before he destroys you. And know the joys of being a vessel of mercy. There are great joys of knowing mercy rather than wrath. And if you're trusting in Christ, you can be assured that the only way you're trusting is that you were prepared beforehand for glory. That God had worked in your life first. You've been called and justified in time and you will know the riches of his glory in eternity. God's word is secure. And that's the whole point of Romans chapter 9. 
Next week we'll see the end of verse 24, how the Gentiles fit into that plan. We'll, we'll see how Israel fits into that plan in 27 and following, that, that God showed mercy to the Gentiles and that God preserved Israel. Getting back to Paul's main point. But I want to close my message this morning just kind of stepping back, thinking about God's patient plan in the text this morning. Um, in particular, here's, here's what I want you to look at and think about. Think about what God is communicating to the world in dealing with vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. I mean, think about what, what God communicates when He saves people and what He communicates when He judges people. Because ultimately, that's what this world is about. I'm not sure you know that. This world is about God. It's about putting God on display and learning and understanding about God. And verse 22 says this, is that when God judges... He makes known His power. And when God saves, verse 23, He makes known the riches of His glory. In other words, when God judges people, there is a specific aspect of Him and His character that is put on display. And when God saves people, there's other different sorts of aspects of Him that's put on display. When He judges, it's His power. That includes His wrath and His righteousness and His holiness is put on full display. And when He saves... It's the riches of His glory that's put on display. That include His mercy and His grace and His steadfast love. And if God saved everybody, He couldn't ever express His power and His wrath. And if God condemned everybody, He couldn't make known His glory and His grace. So He's made the universe in such a way that all of His attributes would shine forth, both in His judging and His saving of men all calculated to put forth His infinite glory. I close with a difficult quote from Jonathan Edwards, but it is, it is good if I just read it slowly and you really think about it, okay? This is, we're, we're delving deep, all right? The, I, I gave you the, the, the easy version, right? When He saves, He demonstrates a part of Himself that's not demonstrated when He judges. And, and these are all, all, all are different, and so He must do both. Here's what he says, Jonathan Edwards. It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. It's a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it's proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that all parts of his glory should shine forth and that every beauty should be proportional and that the beholder may have a proper notion of God it is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifest and another not at all. For then the notion of God would, would not answer reality. For the same reason, it is not proper that one should be manifested exceedingly, but the other just a little. It's highly proper that the glory of God should correspond to his real excellency and the splendor should be corresponding to the real and essential glory for the same reason that it's proper and excellent for God to glorify himself at all. You understand what he's saying? He's saying it's good for God to demonstrate himself. And it's good for God to demonstrate himself as he really is in all of his fullness. And it would be improper if some of him would be manifest and others not at all, or some manifest most and some a little bit. He says what needs to be manifest of God for his glory is everything to be put on display. Thus, Edwards continues, 
it is necessary that God's awful majesty, his authority and dreadful greatness, justice and holiness should be manifested. It's necessary for God to judge sin because of his holiness. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been so decreed. So the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as the others do. And also the glory of his goodness and love and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, then there could be no manifestation of God's holiness and hatred of sin or in showing any preference in his providence of godliness before that there would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. Now, if that was too deep, that's okay. I'm just saying, this is Jonathan Edwards. This is, this is what this text is talking about. Is that in displaying God's glory, in displaying his power, in displaying the riches of his glory... He's got to be a judge and he's got to be a savior in his proportion and in his own way to manifest a good picture of who God is. And that's the big question, right? Can we still find fault with God? I mean, is this is this really fair? He says, but what what if this is the way that God created the universe? As sovereign creator, it's okay that he created the universe that way. There are vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, and they are there so as to display his glory And we're all born vessels of wrath. God works to bring some of us vessels of mercy. But he can't bring all because that would deny his justice. And he can't bring none because that would deny his grace. So he saves in proportion as he will. And God is God. And God will do as he pleases. That's what Romans 9, 22 through 24 are teaching us. It's what we need to embrace. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I would pray that again... these hard words in Romans chapter 9 God would be embraced by us that we might not hate them and pass over them as others do God I, I pray that we would embrace them to see that there are vessels of wrath who walk the earth who will be discarded as a plastic cup to wash up in the ocean someplace and there are vessels of mercy God, that you will display us trophies of grace in heaven forever. That's why you save Ephesians 2, 7. In order that the ages to come, he might put forth the excellencies of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh God, thank you. God, that you've saved us. Have you given us a desire for you? God, what a, a privilege that is. What a, a joy that is to know if you're working in our life. And it's all because of your grace. It's nothing... Um, because of us. And so, Lord, I would pray you give us a heart even to tell others of the gospel. As we hit with Romans 10, how will people be transformed? How will they, they hear unless someone preaches to them? How shall they go unless they're sent? And, and Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Jews that they might be saved. Oh, God, what a message you've given us. May we go forth and proclaim that message and see people become vessels of mercy. God, so strengthen us for these things. Help us to understand your, your plan. Even, even I think about the parable of the, um, the wheat and the tares. <clears throat> that the tares are growing up right with the wheat. And Jesus says, don't bother them. Let them grow. Let them mix together. And for at the end of the judgment, I will take them and cut them down and split them up. I will divide them. Throw the one into the barn to store. 
and throw the other into the fire to be burned. And Father, it's just so as, as wheat is comparable to the vessels of mercy, as the, the, the tares are comparable to the vessels of wrath, God, I pray that you'd use us, God, to see people transform from one to the other. For the glory of your grace, God, because that's what we long to see. We long to see your grace in Jesus Christ put on display. God, so help us and, and strengthen us. So God, we pray. Also pray for our fellowship dinner. God, just would pray that there would be some sweet fellowship, that we would know each other more deeply, God, to be able to serve one another with greater hearts and compassion. God, so guide us and direct us. Thank you for the, uh, the food that you've given to us. May we use it in pleasing you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.